Hello, Tome Show listeners. This is your Tome editor, Sam Dillon, and I am here to bring you exclusive Gen Con D&D audio. This is coming to you, just like in previous years, unedited and uncut. We hope you enjoy it, and if you like the show, please visit our Tome Show sponsor, Noble Knight Games, where Out of Print is available again. And if you visit their site, please tell them that the Tome Show sent you. We're late, right? Uh, only a couple minutes. All right. Better combats. Better combats. Doesn't necessarily mean starting on time. No, no, you should be prepared when you show up. Whether you're on time is secondary. Uh, Let's kick it off. I thought Brandon was joining us, but apparently not. Um, (laughs) Hi, welcome to Running Better Combats. A way to tune up your table just a tiny bit. Um, I'm Wolfgang Bauer. I'm the publisher at Cobalt Press. With me, my associate, Aton Bernstein. Do uh, you want to give yourself a title? Editor at Cobalt Press, among other things? Yeah, editor at Cobalt Press. Freelancer who does writing for Wizards of the Coast, Green Ronin, Goodman Games, and all sorts of other companies. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, so, many years of table time and thinking about game design and what works. Um, I've been running, well... I'm not going to talk about how long I've been running games, because every time I do, I get a little tiny bit sad. Um, But I've found that combat is, of course, when you have everyone's attention. And when you have everyone's attention, the game master is in the spotlight. So I'm sort of presuming that our audience here is largely game masters, dungeon masters. Is there any... Let me turn that around. Is there anyone here who's just a player and doesn't actually run the game? Wow, we have a few ideas for you as well, but given that that's two out of the whole table, I think we're going to direct our commentary primarily to the Game Masters. Um, Yeah, we talk a lot about putting the spotlight on players when we talk about table habits, at least I do, giving everybody a chance to shine. My theory is that uh, when a combat starts, it is the Game Master's turn to shine, Every time he has a turn, right, you are trying to entertain everyone and make sure they um, are entertaining one another if it's working well. Combat is one of your tools to do that. Um, We're just going to... See, now I can be angry at the latecomer because I was only two minutes late. (laughs) Um, It's fine. When I think about running better combat, the main thing I think about is... um, I had three things. Uh, Pacing, effects, and... I don't know what to call it. Character arc, meaning, something like that. Um, So those were my three desperately quickly jotted notes late last night in a bar. What are your notes? My notes are, um, for lack of a better term, when to not have combat. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, efficiency, as in how to keep it going quickly. Um, and when to not care about the rules. Well, we can disagree on that one later, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, I'm willing to play devil's advocate on that one. I think there's two sides to that. Yes, and I think, I think you'll, you'll agree when I, when, because I'm a rules monger, you'll agree when, ah. when I'm, what I'm talking about there. Okay. Because I'm very careful about what I mean by that. Do you want to talk about pacing first or one of sure. yours first? All right. Um, yeah, you can start with pacing. And then I'll we'll start with pacing and then we'll do one of yours. Okay. Um, so pacing. Yeah, everybody loves combat that's quick and exciting and things happen, right? 
Um, but the funny thing about pacing in combat is everybody thinks it's exciting when it's their turn, and it's too slow when it's everybody else's turn, right? Um, if you have a good table habits, everybody takes about the same amount of time as you go around the table. So, Game Masters, tell me, do each of your players get the same amount of time as things go around the table? Because I can't raise my hand for this one. Anyone? No. There's always a slower player, a more thoughtful player, perhaps, someone with more strategy, depth of rules knowledge, busy looking something up because they lack rules knowledge. Somebody's the slow wheel. Especially if they're casting spells, perhaps? Yeah, and spellcasters are especially guilty. We all love it when the fireball saves our butts. However, if you need to look up what a fireball does, you're disappointing the party, right? Um, I think... I mean, your job as Game Master to run a fast combat is keep the sense of momentum up, even while, realistically, your spellcaster's taking more time than your barbarian every single round. Um... My preferred alternative for when I think combat is flagging is to introduce a random element that upsets everybody's plans. I was talking about this with someone at the Cobalt Press booth today. Uh, they had been playing through Horde of the Dragon Queen, and there's an encounter there, um, which, let us say, something crashes from the sky, and people fall down, Right? Uh, because they're they're on the thing that crashes. Well, you could play that as it's a reflex check. Everybody gets to stand up or fall down. Or you could say, I'm going to take this battle mat. I'm going to lift it up. I'm going to shake you all around. And now, you know, completely upset the battlefield in a literal sense. What you've done to the pacing of the battle is you've changed it from, well, we were fine, and the ogres were there, and our wizard was here, to panic. Everything's different. The pacing is suddenly oh my goodness, how do we recover? The ogre is right on top of the wizard now. It's a crisis, right? So, um, for me, pacing can be a tool to put a shot of adrenaline in um, when a combat has turned into, and again, I, I wish I could raise my hand and say this never happens, but when a combat has turned into round after round, roll, did you hit, Give me a numerical damage number, and I fall into that habit. There are some ways of also, besides kicking things up, there may, there may be some simpler ways of at least trying to keep things going by being more organized also. Yes. I mean, there are, there are you know, some accessories you can buy, initiative boards where you can yes. make sure everybody's initiatives are written clearly and that you're keeping track of them, or you can, if you don't want to do that, you can volunteer a player to do it. You can even reward them with, for something for I doing it. I love rewarding players yes. who are helping me run a right. better combat. You could say, for example, ask every single player, if you know that they're going to be making... 20 fortitude saves throughout it. You, and there's if, the, if there's no special modifiers that are going to come up under certain circumstances that are all just normal fortitude saves, ask them to just give you, you know, 20 rolls in advance and write them all down in advance so that they're already done with. Be or, prepared. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just... There, there are things you can automate. You, you can also have a system of on-deck where you always remind the person who's coming up after the person who's about to go that they're going to need to be ready to go and that you're not going to wait for them for more than one minute or 30 seconds or whatever your policy is. I had to use an egg timer at one point. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, these may or may not work, but there are things you can try to do to at least 
make an effort to keep your combats going because there are some game systems and some are more guilty than others that can run really long if you don't try. Uh, we should ask game systems. So how many here are playing Pathfinder or running Pathfinder? How many are running 5th edition? How many are running Fate? Fantasy Age? Just kidding. <laughs> no, all right. Dragon Age, sorry. Anybody doing 4th edition or 3rd edition? 3.5. Shadowrun? Wow. Yeah, it's everywhere. Gossamer and Shadow? <laughs> Thank you. <Say> diceless. <laughs> diceless. <laughs> okay. Hey, man, it's all right. There's always one diceless guy in the room. Thanks. You have certain advantages. I do. Um, yeah, so I, all of these are good tools to sort of keep it moving. I, I think what it ultimately boils down to is if you don't enforce it, people will slack off on it, right? And they'll be checking their phone or they'll be stacking their dice or eating their sandwich and it's like, it's your turn, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the only way to enforce it is to say, oh, yeah, no, the barbarian's eating a sandwich. Next. You're stunned. You lost You're a turn. stunned. You lost a turn. I was going to ask about the egg timer thing. So yeah. was there, like, when the bell rang, was there some kind of a, you screwed up and you don't think There was just or? a, yeah, you were fumbling with material components. Didn't happen, Fair right? Okay, cool. And it was usually, like, your, the pommel of your great axe was a little slippery and, and you didn't get the attack. And it was mean. It was hard to just yeah. say, you've lost and, a turn. That was your moment, and I'm taking it and, away because you're too slow. And, and be fair, because there are players who have learning yeah. disabilities, and there yeah. are players who get nervous. And the goal Absolutely. here is not, we're not trying to punish players who are who have a problem or who no. get really nervous. That's not the goal. The goal is, if, if you have players who are not making an effort to pay attention, right. that's what we're talking about. Not players who have a legitimate reason why they get nervous. Or they're the newcomer, right? Right. It's like they've just been introduced to role-playing games. Right. They don't know what their options are, and somebody right. helped them build a character yeah. But it still takes them three times right. as long. But yeah. So, so that's the reason. We're talking about people who aren't pay, pay, you know, paying attention, making an effort, who are on their phone, texting, on, on social media. Those are the people who you need to kick in the butt. Yeah. And the ultimate kick in the butt is, uh, you know, we don't want to play with you anymore because we spend all our time telling you, hey, it's your turn. Um, or, hey, get it together. And, you know, the rest of us are really engaged and you don't seem to care. There's ways. That's a whole another level of game management not so much combat related but sort of party dynamics related and player dynamics related um all right so that was pacing we want to take one of yours yeah so mine and i think this is kind of related is is what i call skipping so i recently uh was uh playing i played playing a weekly pathfinder game we were playing an old pathfinder very early pathfinder adventure path mm. um what was it the um uh thieves uh, the castle of thieves Oh, yeah. um, wow. Very early and uh, great, but it contains a lot of combats that are way too easy for the party. Okay. And, you, you know, we're sitting there. They're not really draining a whole lot of resources from the party. Mm-hmm. The party can wipe them, just completely destroy them. What do they do, though? We have This is a group of adults in there, mostly 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. We have, at most, maybe three hours, sometimes only even two and a half hours to play a week. Wow. Just because everybody's really busy. Los Angeles screenwriters and publishers and busy people who don't have a lot of time and we don't have you know and often our game sessions even end up having a lot of schmoozing and not even always full gaming so you don't want to have completely unnecessary things you know and not just because they're they're you know easy but sometimes in games you don't want to have unnecessary things because they're boring or stupid or meaningless to the story I mean, oh so don't do the combats that are really just rote is what you're saying, right? I, I'm saying you can. 
I mean, there's a place for random encounters, and there's a place for combat because people need experience, and, you know, sometimes random encounters, okay. But there should be a limit on that. So my advice is when you are noticing fatigue in too many meaningless combats, or when you've identified, especially if you're running an adventure or an adventure path where you're going to say, this combat is so easy, there's no reason I need to run this. There's a billion of them in a row. <laughs> Why can't we just skip this? There's no rule that says you have to run every single room that has two methods in it when your party can just... Is that annihilate fighter... Them. Annihilate them. Yeah. Is the party going to want... But even if the party would annihilate them, how long is it going to take them to roll initiative? And every party member is going to fire a magic missile and do a spell, and it's still going to take half an hour even though they're going to annihilate them. So instead, can you say, oh... You walk into a room full of methods, and you annihilate them. Even feel free to describe, or let each person say, how did you annihilate them? Yeah. I annihilated them with a fireball. I annihilated them by lopping their heads off. You let them have a little fun with it, but you didn't need to waste game time, because, you know, we're all adults here, and we all have busy lives, and we're here to have fun, not run a combat we all know we're going to win, because that's not what the point of the game is. The point of the game is there should be some sort of challenge here. There should be. And I think some bad habits are reinforced by other things we play. I mean, the combat habit in MMOs is you grind because right. you need to grind. Yeah. And my sense of combat in tabletop RPG has been further and further away from that. Yeah. Right? It's like, I don't need to grind. I can just say you get 500 experience points so you level up and we can skip the orc encounter. Right. Um, yeah. No, I... I'm fussier about that, and my dungeons have gotten smaller. I guess that's one way to tune up your combat. Right. <laughs> if you draw a 500-room dungeon, there is an expectation that they will explore 500 of them and have 500 combats, or nearly. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it could have been a five-room dungeon, and those five combats would have been more memorable. Right. Or another way of handling it is have the combat flow. It doesn't have to be one. Oh, that's a horrible solution. I I hate that solution, and I've done it myself. I did it in uh, the Raven's Call when I ran it in Texas recently, where the whole Save the Village thing was combat, combat, float into combat, float into somebody went around the corner. I'm not suggesting you have the whole thing do it. I'm just suggesting once in a while you can have a scenario that takes place, takes place, takes place, takes place in two two or three three different... Sure. I like like the idea of it's just a guy, oh, it's two methods and you annihilated them. Well, if that's the... If that's the aperitif to your combat, it's, yeah. oh, yeah, we kicked their butts, there was nothing there. It's like, yeah, one of them kind of squawked loud, though, as it was expiring in purple blood. Squawked loud. You know, the ogre busts down the door, he's coming to avenge his method friends. Well, now you've got waves right. of combat, yes. uh, and you're making it but interesting yeah, by changing it up. You certainly don't want an entire huge area that's never-ending, because it's going to become a quagmire of awfulness. I've done that. Yeah, I played that a lot in high school, uh, but, <laughs> and there are groups that like it. There are, but they aren't looking to tune up their combat. No. They're looking to expand the opportunities, right? <laughs> yes. Um, all right, so uh, let's talk a little bit about effects. Um, and by effects, I mean. I mean, trying to put out something during the combat as a game master that people will remember. And they won't remember I, you know, I hit and did average damage. They may remember I hit and did average damage and knocked them into something. 
They will certainly remember I hit and did average damage and his buddy snuck up on me. Um, anything that makes players feel either a sense of triumph or a set of threat is good. I guess what I'm looking for in tuning up combat in that sense with effects is putting fear into players uh, or giving them little victories in combat. And the rules may or may not support this, right? Like, I think Bull Rush would be wonderful if it were a free action that didn't require a whole lot of rolls. If some big, burly, dragonkin guy just said, I'm wearing full plate mail, I weigh 300 pounds, I want to move into that square where the goblin is. And you just say, oh, you move into the square where the goblin was, and the goblin's been knocked prone, right? It's like, well, he's a goblin, he's a minion. You're not doing this to big boss monsters, but I think there's room to uh, this is improvisational and it's not in the rules, right? But once in a while Yes, weren't you just Yeah, I was! (laughs) So I'm like, well Be willing to hand wave or do cool things, not for inconsistent latency, but for epic. Yeah, okay. (laughs) <laughs> That's my yeah, that. <laughs> and I've gotten more hand wavy as I've gotten older because when I was a beginning game master I wanted to feel a sense of mastery over the yes. system and I wanted to make sure the combat ran fairly and correctly and I think that's common when you're a newbie you want to feel a sense of mastery and run things fairly and correctly I still want to run things fairly and correctly yes. but I also want everybody to have a blast so tuning up combat sometimes is about and being more entertaining if you had been if if from the start of the campaign, you established the, a fair set of guidelines, everybody knew any specific house rules that weren't exactly written in the whatever Pathfinder handbook, that you did anything weird, unusual, that changes in the rules, things you weren't going to allow, willy-nilly things, if you had been clear, this, yeah, uh, if and, and, and then later on, you, you know... You, you, you know, everybody thought that you were being reasonably clear about what you wanted, and then you hand wave things occasionally. You're on better footing than if you've always been so inconsistent that things felt so out of the blue, then your players are going to not really trust you. Right. There was a solution to this in 4th edition. When I ran 4th edition D&D, everybody had power cards for their characters. I mean, all their abilities. And I would hand them power cards occasionally because I thought, you're the 500-pound tank and you should have a push Card, mm-hmm. Right? And it was like push improv. And there was a sneaky thief guy who got, I forget, some sort of, you can throw stuff and hit. And there was the rules lawyer tiefling who I said, talk somebody into something. Um, and, you know, these were all like, well, I had some hand-wavy mechanics behind them. But I wanted to reward them for things they had done once so successfully that everybody remembered that was their mm. character shtick. It was based on a prior success. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, it turned into even more of that character shtick because they had the card reminding them, oh, yeah, I did that really cool thing once. Yeah. I want to do that really cool thing again right now in combat. In my high school gaming group, we used to call those BS points. Yes. We used to, whenever people we used to grant, we, usually it was, it was second edition D&D or it was even first edition. We used to say, make third level characters. Or you can make a second level or first level character. With a, a lot se- of BS points. If you made a second level <laughs> character, you got one BS point. If you made a first level character, well, it depends on what class you're making. Uh. Because you might have been a fifth level bard or you know, a first level wizard <laughs> or whatever. Let's not diss the bard. But anyway, um, and the number of BS points, if you were first Much. level, you had two BS points. And if you were second level, you had one BS point because you're starting at third level. And the BS points were like a cool magic item or a weird power or 
whatever. So that was one way of the DM, and the DM was the ultimate arbiter on what a BS point was worth. Right. So, you know... And now we call them action points or inspirations or, or any number of other mechanics that support it. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff. The more I see it sort of fit into more and more groups, the happier I am. But but it seems at odds with the trend, at least in some game systems, to codify everything ever since 3.5. Yeah. That's a longer edition discussion. Maybe we should open up for a couple of questions before we hit our last topics. I wanted to talk mm-hmm. that... Uh, that character arc and meaning thing, and I know you have a bunch more topics, mm-hmm. but let's take at least a few questions because sure. we've been rambling for quite a while. Yeah. Um, maybe we can address some specific points. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the, the role of description. Um, That's my next topic. I'm often a little unsure of how much, you know, it's very easy to describe in evocative and sensory ways yeah. the actions of the monsters that you see. Sure. But then you get the player who's just, I roll. I hit it with my axe. Yeah, so I actually have this as my next topic. Do, should we just go to your next topic? Let's repeat the question a little. Uh, it's basically how much should you step in and, and so, describe yeah. a, a player's action as, as yeah. a game master. So I have two ways you guys might be able to handle this that put power in both the GM and the player's hands in this. Mm-hmm. So the two things I would suggest, and this may or may not work for everybody, but they're possibilities. So one possibility that I would suggest for the purposes of the player would be to make part of each character's turn a little bit more descriptive. So your player is a wizard or druid. I would suggest to them for their most commonly cast spells to reflavor those spells to make them slightly different in their descriptions. So the magic missiles that they're casting aren't just force missiles. They're snakes, they're serpents that I'm firing that when they hit their targets, they bite them or their fireballs, except that they explode in a nimbus of brilliant light. And you must ask that player to say, I am I, I fired that bead that explodes in a brilliant nimbus of light. Because you know that the player's probably not going to do a whole lot of description otherwise, but if you ask them to pick a phrase for each one of their spells, that's true. The same thing could go for, for fighters, because so, we can't expect Shire players to necessarily be willing to do a full, complete description. So ask them to pick something very specific. So instead of, you know, I swing my sword and I hit him, you, you, you know, ask them to pick a few canned phrases like, you know, I walk up and I attempt to decapitate him, or I'm going to, um, I'm going to sever his arm. Or, I really want to spit him. You know, whatever it is, make it more descriptive. Have them pick five phrases. So, that's the power I would try to put in the hands of the players, even if it's really a little bit childish. Um, and the, the power, the thing I would suggest for the DMs would be, if you're willing to do it, and if you don't think it's going to slow down your combat too much, you can do a very, very brief recap. Like, one sentence at the end of each combat round of what happened. So, you know, Bob ran up and skewered the ogre, and Susan fired her fireball, decimating those six goblins. The Minotaur ran over and decapitated uh, Jim. However, um, uh, you know, Eva cast Revivify on Jim, instantly bringing him back into the fight. That's all that happened. And you instantly told everybody what just happened, made it more descriptive, 
and you've enabled the people though who weren't paying attention. <laughs> well, but a little bit. Even so, right? It is good to, to have those reminders and to say how did that round go. I mean, I think part of the question though was how much is too much stepping into the role of the player? Right? They should be describing their action, mm-hmm. and so sometimes my solution is either to say uh, you get a Benny if you do a decent description, right? Mm-hmm. Like inspiration point, sure, uh, something. Uh, if I'm especially impressed with your descriptive flair, hero point, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that can tend to reward the most loudmouth and showy yes. players. And they should be rewarded once in a while for being loudmouth and entertaining and showy in combat. But it doesn't do much to support the shyer players mm-hmm. who aren't going to put themselves out. I find in convention games, I'm more inclined to step on the player's description and I try to limit myself because I know I will walk all over your character to, uh, action if if you're super shy and just not being interesting. Yeah. Um, I try to limit myself to it's got to be a critical hit or a critical failure for a shy player before I'll go in and start describing it. Mm-hmm. And my house rule is if you roll a 20, you got to tell us what happened. Mm-hmm. Right? And most times everyone's like, yay, you did something cool. And they're excited. And even the shyer players may be drawn out by that. Besides that reflavoring idea for spells and things like that, the other possibility, if somebody really is shy in-game, the other possibility is maybe they might be willing to write a little like blog post or an email summary or something yeah. expressing what their characters are doing or a monologue or a little story or something in between sessions. I know it may not be ideal, but if our goal is to try to get the, car- the players to express something, maybe they're really shy. At least we can get them a little bit involved by yeah, trying to do that. But we're tuning them up in combat out of combat. I know. So <laughs> I know. But it's better than, it's it, better they're, than they're nothing. They're more engaged. Sure. Uh, description is one of those things, right? It's about reading your table and it's about knowing your players. If you know someone's arachnophobic and you bring out the spider character and you go to town on that description, you know the uh, the emotional impact you're going to have. I actually did that once and someone left the table and it was bad, so don't do it. Uh, exactly. So those are the kinds of things where you may want to ask ahead of time. Well, this is where Shelob the Great appears. Do you want to show up for this session? Would you like me to skip the description? There are actually times where I would dial back description based on age of the players at a convention game or how well I know you or or those sorts of things, right? Yeah, um, you can even uh, at the beginning of your, if you're playing at a campaign, you can at the beginning of the campaign ask the players, are there any topics that are things you would prefer we don't cover during this campaign? And you can even do so at a campaign if you're really concerned about that. Are there any things that you would prefer we just, you can take the players out. Is there anything you would really prefer we don't deal with during this campaign? Any topics, anything? It's up to you if, if you're concerned about that. There it tends are, to come up more in modern games than it fantasy. Does. It does. It comes up a lot. I'd actually say that, yeah, if you're playing vampire, you may want to... In Legend of the Five Rings, for example, there was just there was a player who did not want to deal with spiders, but there was another player who, you know, be very, in particular, very careful about uh, anything sexual, I mean, in general, because that's, I mean, this is D&D, so obviously a little bit less likely, but it mm-hmm. does happen. Those are touchy things. Just, you know, be... Don't come up in combat that often. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> or they shouldn't. Or they shouldn't. They shouldn't. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that's certainly certainly worth doing. Um, you know, some people have a certain level of glee about violent description, and other people say, I'm kind of squicked out by your constant description of eyeball gouging, knock it off, yeah. right? Um, that's fine. Uh, that's, that's a tuning up your table 
kind of thing generally. Know what what your players will will enjoy and not. Um, I want to talk about a little. Well, let's take one more question. That was just the first question. Let's take this guy over here. Okay. Um, yeah, one of the things that I found uh, in playing something like, let's just say, Savage Worlds, sure, is that. Uh, there's this mechanic that if the Joker gets drawn, then there's all kinds of special effects. And one of them that I've made as a house rule is that everybody gets a you know gets a chip. Uh, oh yeah. Penny, uh, uh-huh. So that so that it changes up the whole makeup of something in the process. So sometimes there may be trigger points in the middle of a combat, like somebody rolls a necessary critical, or there's a fumble, or yep. a near crit, or something like that. And then you can begin to give everybody a benefit as a result of that that kind of enlivens things. Yeah. Yeah, anything you can do to personalize the game. Uh, people do something really cool and you can make the game more personal to their characters. People, Players love that. Yeah, and being handed a power chip yeah. of any kind is usually hooray. Yeah. Um, power chips that go away at the end of the session work better for me than ones yes. that people can keep because they tend to hoard them. Um, it makes it more memorable if you got that one cool thing, but you got to use it. It makes that, session, yeah. that makes that session really memorable, and they'll remember it. Yeah, burn all your karma now, people. Make it interesting tonight. Don't wait till next week. You'll forget you had that point. Um, all right, one more question, Steve. Just touch on that one. For a lot of people who play the Pathfinder, that's how I use plot twist cards in my own game. Oh yeah, as rewards, as rewards for people who I let it go two sessions because I never liked them to go away. Yeah. If it was the final combat of the game of the night, right? At least have it next time. Sure. That was all I was going to plot twists are good. Uh, plot twist cards. All right. Um, we want to take one more question. Or we sure. want to hit. Uh, all right. We got one more. I thought I saw another hand. Oh yeah. Yes, sir. Hmm, what to, when you get into uh, characters that have tremendous number of hit points? Right. And seems like it's a grind through. It is through to them, and then they've got immense. Uh, Restorative powers, uh-huh. which makes things grindy even yep. even more. Yeah. What, what do you do about that? But super powered characters with huge restoration and grindiness. I stopped playing at that level. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, there are game systems where I just say I'm going to top out at ten, and that's fine. There are also challenges. I mean, this it, we're, this is a combat mechanics thing. Yeah. But there are there are challenges that can't be solved by combat. Also. Right. But I mean. The game systems that sort of turn into grind fests because people do have infinite, well, not infinite, deep resources, yes. um, huge power levels. I mean, you're playing a slightly different game at that point. Um, you can't really threaten the physical character that much. Um, and this is where it sometimes turns into a political or intrigue game, right. where it turns into threats to things they care about. Um, but. On the other hand, if they manage to make a character that's so powerful that, that you can't threaten them, then you can also make monsters and NPCs that powerful. If it's possible in the game for them to come up with something, theoretically, it should also be possible for you to make um, monsters. Of course, if you're getting to that point, it doesn't sound like it'd be all that fun. But Yeah. I mean, this is why I quit playing sort of high-level supers stuff. Yeah. I, I, I know that's not the solution you want to hear, but at a certain power level, you either commit to... You have deep resources, and you have to build super big challenges, and it's more prep work to challenge those kind of characters. Or you say, yeah, we're going to go out with a big bang, and you're going to need all those resources because, you know, here's Lord Orcus. Get ready. Um, I think we have a possible solution from someone I know. Steve? We do the high-level 
Yeah, I know. Okay. (laughs) How do you handle high-level grindiness? Because it's boring to me. So one of the things we have is, one, if you have a toolbox of deep resources to deal with, that helps. So that you don't have to come up with everything uh, beforehand to help you. The biggest one that I've found is uh, a lot of that grindiness comes from the feeling of a lack of threat. They don't feel threatened because they're so powerful and they're so so high level. A lot of times it's you can be just, it's just like being a first level guy and running into a tenth level guy. You can throw something at them that is literally beyond their capabilities. A lot of times you can't, at that level, you can't gauge their capabilities as easy as you can a first level character because they just have so many resources. So don't be afraid to throw something that you think is over them. If they're taking out the standard stuff in, in a grind, Throw something that really, really hurts them and watch yeah. them run. It's the problem with that solution is, I mean, then the, the level of threat and the sort of narrative stuff tends to collapse when it, the it, demon it, lords show up every weekend, it, right? It, it can. But they, the other thing is, is uh, that, that we also go with is there was... We created a template just to deal with characters who had so many restorative resources. And this, again, is a cheat. It was simply a matter of... Oh. It, yeah. It, it becomes harder to heal that... Yeah, one specific creature. Now, these things all have to be steps that that come along. But the big well, I think I think there's I mean there's yeah. encounter design things you can do to this yes. right. Um, if they have a toolbox and it's awesome, yeah, that's great. And you uh, you have to be ruthless enough to say, well, you're entering the chill tomb of Tharizdun, and by the way, healing spells don't work here anymore. Period. But yeah. I, tend to, I tend to do that because. To me, that thing starts to become a cheat. It does, and but I think I try to do that only a single room becomes. That yep. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of an adventure design that challenges things that otherwise become super grindy, and yeah. you need to flag it right. It's like you're entering the chill tomb. The temperature the drops. Right. These sort of hazard effects, regional. It, it's like, well, the light turns if, purple, your magic sensors all go if, off. If there you're are sparing, clues. if you're sparing, and you didn't just say, okay, you can't heal, anti magic field. I mean, you can't add 10 conditions that negate everything they do. Yeah. But one or two that, that, that you know, you know. They're going to set up, you know, their best possible defenses in full right. depth. So I think it's not a cheat to say, well, the bad guys have some resources. Yes. And some of them are. Um, environment changing. Yes. So planar conditions. You can you yeah. can you know you can alter the environment. I think it, it would be a little bit silly to say all of your abilities don't work. No but, no no. But, but a couple of changes to the environment where you can say magic is severely impaired or you know regeneration and restorative spells and things like that are don't function as well. You know your familiars run away. It can just be a sense of foreboding sometimes. Bruce Cordell said this, and what he was doing the Epic Level Handbook, and this is the thing I always uh, try to remember, was when you're talking about high-level, really superpower grindy stuff, you don't want it to be where you stop, where you start banning those things in order to make it functional. You want to require those things in order to be <laughs> an adventure to begin with. If the environment is constantly doing additional damage to you the entire time, you're not stopping it from healing. You're just making them use up all of those resources more than they want. Sure. There's no reason the chill Chamber of Thar is doing can't be doing 3D12 around. Yes. Cold damage. And if if you're having problems with teleportation because they can move around at will, then make it required that in order to get to the next room, there's no door, there's no passageway. 
There is only teleportation. teleportation. Yeah. yeah, Bruce is pretty smart about high-level play. That was probably the best and my, Yeah, I like that quote. Thank you. Yeah. So Epic Level Handbook by Bruce Cordell. Look that up. Uh, I believe Wright Publishing may have some resources in this direction. Um, who else would I recommend? If you're playing Pathfinder, the Mythic books from uh, Legendary Games, my partners in the booth in the dealer hall, are, are all about high-powered stuff. Yeah, but we, we have uh, some Mythic stuff, too. Yeah, yeah, we do a little bit of stuff at Cobalt Press talking about <laughs> Mythic. Um, deep magic, for instance. But I think we have a mythic adventure. We so we actually I've heard of that. We do, although I don't think we have it here at the show. Anyway, um, yeah, there's many ways to handle it, but it's tough, and some rule systems do just slowly break down at the high levels. Slowly, and then suddenly. We want to go to the next topic. Yeah, what's your next topic? My next topic was going to be accessories that we might want to use that might make oh, combat you brought easier. A, you brought a sample. I did. Is I this the I, elevation indicator? This is the Dr. Wizard's patented elevation indicator. Yes. And it is just one... I mean, we already talked a little bit about, you know, simple things like little initiative boards, and you can reward players by giving them, you know, like, whoever's going to do mapping today and, if you know, can get... I don't know, 50 extra experience or, or whatever, however you want to do it. Um, you could, you know, you could also have the initiative board. If you're going to volunteer to keep initiative today, then you get an action point or, or whatever. But, um, I, I like exploring new, um, accessories that make the game interesting. This is a cool one. This is Dr. Wizard's patented elevation indicator. I just like the name. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure you can find one somewhere in the dealer's room. I bought this a couple of years ago because I just find keeping track of height, um, you know, flying characters really annoying in the game. And so you just put your flying character on top of this, and there's these matching bands. And um, so if you have multiple flying creatures, you can put um, the green band um, at the height you want uh, uh, a particular flying creature to be, and then the the other green band on that flying creature. So even though you can only put one creature on top here, you could put multiple different heights if you've got six or seven different flying creatures yeah. so that you can track heights of multiple. So you have a whole flying combat, you can know where every single flying creature's height, rather than just trying to guess if that's really important to you. So that's just an example of an accessory. But I thought rather than us trying to say all the... Well, I mean, do you have any other examples or accessories? I have... Well, I'm one of these weird people who is moved further and further away from maps and minis. Sure. So that's a whole area where I have a bit of a blind spot. I no longer run anything except boss fights on a, on a grid. Okay. Um, but I'd like to hear what, what accessories people here have found especially valuable, because I'm sure... I sort of get the sense that sure. people have... We've called on Steve a lot, so we're calling on somebody else now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the so, back. Uh, I have a, a trick that worked for two of the various Sure. Yeah, a lot of card decks. Uh, I went to the Expedient. Uh, some of you may remember Torque. I realize there are only about three people that play that game. It's better to come back again. I uh, used the action deck. Uh, I went to the Expedient of reprinting the entire deck, and I put excerpts from campaign events featuring characters oh. on the cards. So you personalize the action deck for your group. the action deck for the game, and I keep it up to date. Nice. Or, Really good. My printer is going full, you know, twenty-four-seven. But the kids love seeing. I, I work with a group of ADD kids, uh-huh. and those, when they're waiting for their cards to come up, they are focused on the combat. I have beaten ADD, serious clinical ADD, with these kids. Wow. Because uh, my gamers are actually handicapped. So. Well, well, that's great. That's a great solution. That's great. That. I mean. But even even normal players like seeing their. I think we all do. Yeah. I mean, that's why we talk about the player spotlight. Everybody likes to be acknowledged. They like their role in combat to be recognized. 
that they've made a contribution. Um, I think as a game master, sometimes we're really into our monsters and our villains and just keeping keeping all the balls in the air. Um, I, I occasionally have to remind myself, oh yeah, I should I should tell Anne that that character action was really successful in some way, right? And to, to call out, oh. I mean, the way I acknowledge their success is generally, you cast your spell and let me describe what a complete and total success it has been, right? Um, by saying these monsters get blown out into the next cavern or what have you. Um, and sometimes I am busy just ticking off numbers or boxes and points. So um, I don't know if this counts as an accessory. It's one of the reminders on my GM screen. Yeah. <laughs> one of the reminders on my GM screen is just reward success, yeah. right? Um, it, it sounds easy, but I find that often I do fall into that rhythm of numbers, location, what are we doing? Um, and, and, you know, frankly, the genres we play are all heroic genres, pretty much. Uh, and even a Call of Cthulhu character who's doomed to go insane very shortly <laughs> likes to know that their insanity is in some, serving some greater purpose, right? Um, so, so those moments in combat are kind of leading into my last topic, which is this character arc and meaning thing, which um, is, is really tough for me to articulate. Sometimes. I really want to write an essay on this topic at some point, but when we talk about heroism and, like, doing the right thing in combat, um, it's not chopping off the orc chieftain's head. Yes, that's the right thing to do. He was threatening you all, but that was an easy choice. Um, the more interesting ones to me are the the dilemmas, right? It's, well, these two children are barreling down the hillside in a some way, and, um, and there's also an orc chieftain who is running off with, you know, the Lord Mayor. Well, now what? You can't do them both, right? You need to have make a decision. So if I can work a dilemma into a combat, I'm thrilled. I usually have to plan these ahead of time because I'm not clever enough to get dilemmas like on the fly, improv style every time. Yeah. So I was or, make- yeah, there's only enough time for you to either go after that lich that's probably going to go blow off the countryside or collect that enormously valuable treasure that's within this dungeon. Yeah, that's always the best one to put in front of the rogue, because you know which way they're going. (laughs) I'm rich! (laughs) Of course the treasure's probably cursed, but still. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I mean, if you can tailor dilemmas to different classes and different character archetypes, right, um, the fighter's always going to want to bash his way through a problem. Um, The the rogue is always looking for what can I rob. Uh, The fighter's looking for uh, the... Wizards looking for a spell solution. Um, if I can get them to think outside their class roles, that's a, a win for me. Um, the other thing I do more lately than I used to is something I picked up way back when in the Pendragon RPG. Mm. Yeah. yeah, where character generation involved also having family ties to other knights and other nobles and uh, certain you know traits like loyal, pious, lusty, whatever... Um, it was a really interesting system because it was partly about you as the heroic knight and partly about the family and relations you had. And now I try to force my players to have relatives that I can, you know, make suffer in various ways. Um, and then if a combat is on behalf of some of those other people, they tend to be more into it and less able to, or less likely to be checking their phones and social media, right? Like, Uncle Willie needs us to save the farm. Let's get this combat done, right? 
mean, what would you do if your party gets attacked by your mother? She's wielding a sword, and yet, you know... Clearly demonically possessed. Yeah, but maybe, maybe it's an illusion or a polymorph or something, but your mother's murderizing your party with a sword. <laughs> yeah, somebody look up the subdual rules she's not, quick. She's not using subdual damage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, but I mean, those sorts of situations where you can say, hey, this is the mentor who made you a, a monk, right? Now you are a master of the martial arts and, well, what can you do? Yeah, possession. And, and or, you know, possession, blackmail, extortion, uh, murder is pretty far, but, you know, it's a tool. Kidnapping. Kidnapping, all those horrible things, um, lead to motivation in combat. So I guess this is the drawing out of tuning up the combat from, well, we're fighting these guys because there's XP and treasure in it, to, we're fighting these guys because there's XP and treasure in it, but also they messed up Uncle Willie's farm and we aren't having that. So I'm always looking for those levers on characters. Mm -hmm. And some of my players are great about it and some are less. Yeah, I mean, there should be good reasons to fight in combat and also good reasons not to. Oh, yeah, we're going to go back to not fighting yes. in the combat uh, seminar. Yeah, I, I... Gutsy move. I still feel like tuning up your combat means you need to know when the combat should happen and also when it shouldn't happen. Yeah. So. Well, how many people grind through combats where they think to themselves, I'm wasting my time with this whole encounter, but somebody wrote it in. Yeah, see, there's like a third of... Almost half the audience says. Sometimes you, get, sometimes you get halfway through and it's obvious though. It's obvious. It, you know, yeah, I mean, sometimes I will just call it halfway through. It's like, okay, you're going to need to do another seventy-five points here, but it's just, it's just math at this point, and I'm and, bored. And wouldn't you? Would, would you feel bad if, if we just if your if a character died in a meaningless, stupid, boring combat? Yeah, yeah, I would. I would feel bad, <laughs> not because there is, isn't supposed to be some chance of random death, because yeah. there is supposed to be, but because it was boring and meaningless. Yeah, I try to avoid those fights, but you don't always know. Sometimes it is right. halfway through before you realize, yeah, this is sort of a waste of our half hour. We should have had a better fight. Um, and, you know, you can blame the game designer, or you can say, I should have skipped this encounter. Um, if you can read the material ahead of time and spot those, more power to you. I think we had a yeah, question. Yeah, uh, question. It, it was really nice playing in a, in a particular adventure last night where it was, um, we were running into a time crunch <laughs> in order to complete things. But there was um, one, of the, one of the tricks, too, I think, that helps with combat is, is that if there is some sort of significant die throw or event that allows you to seal the deal and yeah. eliminate it right then and there mm -hmm. and just make it happen that way, that well, has a whole lot more impact than you had this great thing and then you did it for another two or three rounds and, it, and you lost the impact of that wonderful... Right. I mean, I like doing the you've broken their morale moment fairly yes. frequently. Yes. Um, for two reasons. One is, hey, you did crit. You did kill the orc captain. Yay, you, right? You've just had a big combat success. Let's reward that. And B, uh, the cleaning up the rest of this is going to be boring. They flee. The other orcs are terribly demoralized. They run howling into right. the woods, which is a retreat. They might come back later, but we can just sort of count that as one, a wordful experience, right? You're done. Uh, and B, I like to show that monsters retreat sometimes in the vain hope the player characters will retreat occasionally. They'll learn by example, but that never seems to happen. <laughs> and the, 
most games haven't really had a good retreat system because, like in yeah. D and D, it's a bad idea. Right. Because uh, they have like spells go hundreds of feet. Oh, I'll run away. Okay, we'll just cast spells while you're running and you're exactly in your and your toes. And the other problem is that um, in D and D, for the most part, whether the monster has all 200 of its hit points or one left, yes. it is equally effective. Yeah. So you know. That's why morale is such a tricky situation. Yep. So you know, I'm willing to do it to cut short a combat that isn't right. going anywhere. You, yeah, you just did that critical, amazing backstab or that amazing, you know, overhanded swipe, and you think, "Wow, that should have killed him." And he has one hit point left. Yeah, let's end on a high note with that, right? You did let's, kill him. You did kill him, and let's move to the next encounter, or better yet. Loot. Yes. But that's a separate seminar. Ooh, uh, someone we haven't talked to. Yes, you, sir. Um, well, I think the key to the retreat is having uh, an adequate terrain system that yes. allows them to prevent that fireball from 170 yeah. feet away yep. they're moving 60. Yeah, so lines of sight and cover, and then it's like a whole yeah. wargaming thing. Then, yeah. then if the players choose to do the I'm running after them, then that actually is kind of a new encounter. Yep. Yeah. But if you just sort of have them run down this giant plane, then it turns into picking them off as they Yeah, come if we sure. assume your enemy, at least some of the enemies you're having your PCs fight have some contingency plan that they might have to run away, some of them should. Yeah. That's why I only play in forested terrain. Teleport. Yeah. Has a decent uh, chase system rules. That, so, yes. So the retreat can suddenly turn into a chase instead of just I move six, they move six. I move. You know. Right. Which is like okay. Right. That's <laughs> that's not a solution. That's. Uh, yes. Um, you said for uh, how does read adventures beforehand is, uh, watch for those stale comments will be bad. Uh, what are sure signs of those? Sure signs of a stale like comment. Would you know that this counter looks like it's probably going to be boring. Some of them maybe might be boring, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy to spot ahead of time, necessarily. Uh, if there's good descriptive text around it or an interesting treasure or the room has an interesting hazard in it, that's better than, well, it's, you know, a barracks with... 13 orcs, but those it, are the easy is, ones. Is, is, it, is it just, is it just a, a cave with no features whatsoever and and 15 goblins with no special abilities, no tactics, and no gear and nothing of note to them? And if they're it's just an encounter, going to attack you? Right. If it's an encounter <laughs> without, um, without a plot point in it, without a treasure that's important, or without a tactical element, right? Yeah. If there's nothing beyond the monster stats in it, then I'm like, well... Better be in a very they, you open the door really better, and yeah. they attack you. What? There are monsters that interesting. Um, I mean, I think Medusas are tons of fun. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are mo- plenty of monsters that are inherently interesting enough just based on their own abilities to fight them. Right. But, but humanoids, orcs, ogres, that stuff tends to be boring unless something else is supporting them plot-wise, treasure-wise. Yeah. If there was a speech by the leader of the orcs insulting Clue. you... Yes. Enough that you really want to kill them, that could be enough in and of itself for a low-level party. But if it's just you open the door of the orc barracks and the orcs attack you, that could be boring. Once or twice, sure. That encounter was thrilling the first time I ran it, right? I remember that being really exciting. And this game in Texas I keep referring to, there was an 11-year-old player, everything was new to him. Sure. So I didn't skimp on the 
pretty standard encounters because his eyes lit up when his archer hit anything, right? It's like, I just want to give him targets, a world full of targets, right? Because he was thrilled, and it was a fathers and sons game, three fathers and their three sons, and it was just an but awesome game because that's knowing everybody, your audience. that's knowing your audience, right? And uh, the kid was happy, his dad was happy because the kid was having a good time, and everyone else was like, hey, our archer's kicking butt, let's keep the, you know, give the kid some dice. So um, that was an opportunity to shine right. and rewarding his success, and he was, you know, hooked for life on RPGs. And people so. can enjoy the camaraderie of kicking ass. Yes. And there's something to be said for that. If you're having fun and kicking ass, and you know, maybe that doesn't matter. But if it, if and when it starts to feel like it's boring and we've grinding, been here before, yeah. yeah, that's when you make the decision about whether or not that encounter just doesn't have to happen. You kill the orcs. You run away. They surrender. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Escalation die in 13th Age is great for just ending things faster. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with this mechanic, but okay, a lot of nodding heads. Good, it's gotten out there. People know it. If you don't know it, look it up. Escalation dice. It's free SRD. It's free SRD. It's just a cool way to give everybody a bigger and bigger bonus until the combat is over quickly. Um, and that's a nice way to go. All right, well, we're running out of time rapidly. Maybe we take one more question and wrap? Sure. Just about. I mean, how many of you are here for the thing after this? Oh, yeah, there's always a thing. I think you're here for that. I may have to skip on that, depending on... I, Brandon told me he was taking that one, but we'll see. I hope he is, because otherwise it's just me and that's scary. Well, let's not do that. Campaign <laughs> mechanic. Oh, okay. Well, that's a separate topic. I mean, I'll, I'll do it. No, 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 no. That's no, no, fine. That, that is a separate topic. I, I told Brandon was coming. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, let's wrap up the combat topic, and uh, I at least need to take a little break between panels. Yes. But... Um, yeah, I mean, the table is what you make it, and you want to have players who are your partners and having a good time. A lot of tuning, tuning things up is um, making sure that you know time limits are respected, that you're th- giving people opportunities to succeed and rewarding that success, uh, that you're knowing when to, when to drop a dull encounter or end it through morale or retreat or, hey, that was just a big hit and it's over, let's move on. Um, and, and some of it is the more engaged you are, as a game master, I find a combat that is boring me, I am likely to be a worse game master running it, because I'm sort of going through the motions, too. So you're rewarding yourself by skipping those. You're also rewarding your players, because the encounters that you're high energy about, and I find often, you know, standing up gets me way more excited about the encounter. Um, those are the ones that you should be doing. You can't do every encounter standing up full of energy, bouncing off the walls. But, but all of your encounters, all of your combats should, should excite somebody and make somebody happy. Um, so, so find what it is that's cool about it and plug that thing. That's my last word. What about you? Uh, it's all about having fun. So yeah. keep that in mind. And if it's not fun, well, think about why it wasn't fun. And maybe get some feedback from your players. Was this fun? Why wasn't it fun? And then try to see if you can make it more fun next time. Yeah. Thank you all for your excellent questions and your attention. We'll maybe uh, see some of you for the next panel tuning up your whole campaign, not yeah. just the combat. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please consider using our Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links found on the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Thanks again, and keep gaming.